BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in a place I've basically not left for the last five months. Uh, between January 25th and March 24th, the Wuhan-based writer Fang Fang wrote daily diary entries and posted them online from the epicenter of the disease back then that came to be called COVID-19. With its often severe criticism of the handling of the outbreak, the diary entries were quickly made the target of censorship, but people found a way to spread them and they became a source of real controversy with Fang pilloried by people who accused her of everything from spreading rumors to doing the, the work of nefarious, hostile foreign forces. That controversy heated up again when it was revealed that the diaries were being collected into a book to be published in English in several other languages. The translator of the English version of the book was also made the target of insults, of condemnations, and even threats of violence. The translation has now been out for a couple of weeks. It's called Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantined City. Today, I am joined by the translator. Michael Berry is Professor of Contemporary Chinese Cultural Studies and Director of the Center for Chinese Studies at UCLA. You may remember Michael from our recent California series when I spoke to him and to Janet Yang about the state of the film industry in China and of China-Hollywood collaboration. He is a killer bassist who could even play the crazy Andy West bass part to Assembly Line, the opening track on the Dixie Dregs album Industry Standard, which goes like this. Andy West. Oh, I'm sorry. Michael Berry, welcome back to Seneca. Hi, Kaiser. Pleasure to be here. Let, let me preface this conversation with you by saying that I'm actually breaking with many years of custom here. Um, ordinarily, when I speak to the author of a book, or I guess to a translator of it, I've actually read that book uh, itself. It's, it's kind of a point of pride for me on this podcast. In this case, however, I read no more than a handful of the diary entries that Fang Fang wrote. Um, so I apologize to listeners. But I have spoken at length with Michael, and hopefully I won't be asking questions that are too abjectly ignorant. Anyway, Michael, let's start with who Fang Fang is, uh, maybe a bit of an overview of her body of work to date, and you know what her reputation has been prior to this, like where you would situate her among contemporary Chinese writers. So Fang Fang is basically of the same generation as other leading writers like Mo Yan or Su Tong, Yu Hua, Wang Ani, the kind of pillars of contemporary Chinese literature that are very well translated, very influential in the West, people like Yan Lian Ke. She's right in that same generation. And her trajectory as a writer in many ways follows them. She, you know, born under the red flag and, uh, 
Grew up during the Cultural Revolution, begins writing in the late 70s, early 80s, starts with some poetry, turns to fiction, Mm -hmm. and in the 80s really rise to prominence as one of the leading women writers in China. Her works are translated all around the world. Uh, By now, she's published probably in excess of 100 books um, in in different editions over the course of her career, including novels, essays, short stories. And for most of her life, she was born in Nanjing, but she grew up in Wuhan since the age of two. And she's probably the writer in China most closely identified with the city of Wuhan, uh, more so than any other writer. And many of her novels are set in Wuhan, a lot of historical fiction that feature that city as a backdrop. Um, And so when this outbreak happened, um, she was kind of the natural voice to speak for that city and to really bring a lot of people together and coalesce around her writing because she, over the years, has really come to be the probably the single most representative figure of Wuhan literature. Great. So, Michael, Fang Fang is actually considered something of an establishment writer. I mean, she is, after all, like the head of the Hubei Writers Association, right, which is sort of an official government-backed organization. Yes, she served as the chair of the Hubei Writers Association, and throughout her career, she's had very good relations with the government. She's never been considered anything close to, say, a dissident writer or someone who was openly challenging the government or the party through her work. It was really only in 2017 that one of her novels called A Soft Burial started to elicit some controversy in China. And that's maybe where there began to be a little bit of a tension between her and the establishment. And A Soft Burial is focused on land reform, which began pretty much immediately after 1949, certainly by the early 1950s. Uh, And it's the thing that makes them communist, right? It's redistribution of land from landlords to land-hungry peasants. And so what was it that she said about land reform that got people so exercised about this? It's not so much what she said, but the main protagonist of A Soft Burial is a former landlord, someone from a family of a a landlord family. And it basically is quite sympathetic to her plight and all of the trauma and the challenges that she faces over the course of several decades after her family is subjected to violence during that land reform movement. And so it kind of puts the traditional historiography of the land reform movement topsy-turvy, because in this context, your sympathies are with the protagonist and with this the terrible injustices that were done to her and her family. And so for the detractors of this novel, that was something that was unacceptable. That was kind right, of right. T- messing with the canon, so to speak, of modern Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And you were working on the actual translation for that. Is that correct? And, and that's sort of how you got to know Fang Fang? That's right. About a year ago, I had agreed to translate A Soft Burial, and I was working on that. That's how I met Fang Fang. That's how we came together. And when the coronavirus outbreak happened, it I know that she lives in Wuhan, so it was only natural that I would reach out to her, check in with her, just make sure she and her family were doing well. And we were exchanging a lot of texts early on, just just check-in texts to see how she's doing. I didn't even know that she was writing a diary. Mm. That was completely off the radar for me. And then it wasn't until a couple of weeks in that after she had begun writing the diary that a mutual, well, a friend recommended I take a a good look at it because he said it's really remarkable what she's doing in that diary. 
And that's when I finally went online, pulled up a couple entries, and I was just utterly floored and blown away. And I just felt this is such an important voice in terms of making visible what's happening in Wuhan right now. And it's the only time in my career where, I mean, normally if I'm going to translate a book, I'm going to read the whole book cover to cover. I'm going to carefully decide if I want to take it on or not. This was something where I read, you know, a couple thousand words and I just said, my God, we got to do this. And so I immediately wrote the Fang Fang and suggested that we put a soft burial aside and move on to Wuhan Diary and try to get this out quickly. So what was it about those first thousand or so characters that you read that really grabbed you and, and made you feel sort of the urgency of, of getting this in the translation? Well, what was happening was as the outbreak was unfolding, I think I, like a lot of other colleagues who have studied China, were all keenly following the news that was coming out of Wuhan. But it's all coming out fairly filtered, right? It's going to be headline news from various news sources, whether it's CNN or whether it's local Chinese sources. And it miss, you're missing the human element. You don't really get a sense of what it's like on the ground, what it's like for people who are experiencing this, who are under lockdown. Of course, now we all know what it's like to be under lockdown. But at that point, uh, it was quite unprecedented to take a city of nearly 10 million people and just lock the whole city down. And her diary provided just a really unique lens to understand what an average person was experiencing, what they're going through as they're trying to adapt to this new life, but also trying to understand what is this coronavirus? How does it spread? Uh, how does it affect people? How many people are hospitalized who get sick? All those basic questions that we're, we're still working on, but right now we have a fairly good understanding of a lot of the intricacies of how the disease functions, at least a lot better than they did in January. But at this point, they were totally walking in the dark, and this provided just a remarkable insight on how people were reacting to this outbreak, also how the government was responding to the outbreak, and all through the lens of this incredible writer. And I just thought this is something that the whole world probably needs to read because we all know diseases spread. And if this thing continued to spread, this would be just an incredibly valuable document in terms of telling us how China reacted and responded and hopefully provide some instruction of what to do or what not to do. But, mm. but it just felt like a really timely uh, document that captured this, you know, spirit that was in the air at that moment. And, and I just embraced it. And that's how it began. Actually, it's actually not how it began, because Feng Feng said, no, I should say. <laughs> um, when I first pitched it to her, she, her response was, you know, I'm flattered. However, it's not done. I've only written a couple entries. The outbreak is still ongoing. The diary is still being written. It's just premature. So let's just put it on hold and uh, wait a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense, too. But uh, you eventually did decide to write it. I'm, I'm curious, though, what her sources of information were. Uh, I know that she had a couple of doctor friends that she was talking to pretty regularly. But um, aside from that, I mean, there's a lot of criticism that, you know, she was just sort of spreading rumors that she was – uh, that she you know, really knew no more about what was actually going on than, than any other person in Wuhan. And, uh, and yet she was being read by, at, at, at various points, you know, millions of people. Yeah, so the allegation that she's spreading rumors, that's easy for me to address. Um, there, there's a couple reasons why they went after her on that point. One is that 
a lot, all of the information she's getting, just like you said, she's quarantined in her house, in her apartment. Right. And so she's not at the hospital. She's not at the police station. She's not out in the streets doing investigative journalism. She's someone just like everyone else locked in her apartment. But what she's doing is surfing the internet, reading all the latest articles. She's chatting with her friends who happen to be a circle of kind of in-the-know intellectuals, researchers at different universities, writers, um, and also doctors. She has, in particular, there are four doctor friends that she reaches out to on a daily basis and gets the kind of uh, of the moment news coming out of local hospitals, what's happening with all of the latest research, what's happening with patients. And then she's kind of this uh, funnel, right, where all of this information comes through, she digests it, and then she writes in her diary all the latest things that she's hearing and learning. Now, one of the reasons that everyone's saying it's rumors, one, because it's secondhand, right? She's hearing from these people in her circle of friends, but also... Uh, are the doctors actually named in, in this, or are they kept anonymous? They're all kept anonymous. The only mm-hmm. name she gives is when someone's name has already appeared in the media for some reason or another. And there's a very clear reason why she does that. And that is that Fang Fang has been the target of these attacks for many years now. But in particular, once the diary started being posted online, uh, a group of what you could call ultra leftists or neo-nationalists in China started to mercilessly attack her online with death threats, all kinds of things. Um, And so what happens, though, is these people attacking her also go after those individuals associated with Fang Fang. And she's very conscious of that. And she knows that if she starts dropping names of the doctors or her neighbors, um, she in some ways opens them up to attacks as well and opens them up to get trolled by these uh, uh, online. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it's really a kind of protectionist decision that she decided to do that so a lot of them but that's precisely then the trolls come after her for that as well and say see it's just rumors it's hearsay it's just my friend so and so this friend that person and they claim that it could be anybody and she's making it up michael though um you know we'll we'll get into all the sort of reasons behind the trolling and 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 what sparked all that uh just just a couple of points clarification so she was actually writing this stuff initially on weibo right uh, until Weibo started getting censored, and then she moved over to Weixin. Is is that? Am I? Do I have that correct? Yeah, and eventually the diary migrated to WeChat, and then it migrated to a friend's account on WeChat when she was unable to post these public postings. Right. Um, a, a fellow writer started posting them, and that's how a lot of them got out there. Okay, and people were all able to find this stuff. I mean, the, the, the le- number of people who were reading it continued to stay pretty high despite her having to move around. Yeah, she was getting early on some of the posts, 3 million, 5 million, eventually 10 wow. million. Uh, many of the posts in the tens of millions. I've seen a lot of estimates that it, at the height of its popularity, she was getting approximately 50 million readers for these posts. And that's within just the span of a day or two after these things were went online. And so the, the number of people coalescing around these posts was quite remarkable. And uh, even for her, really unprecedented. She, she even talked about giving up the diary at one point because she was so kind of ant- intimidated by just the fact of having 50 million people read your writings. It's something uh, 
that a writer like her has never experienced in her career. And it brought just an unprecedented amount of attention and scrutiny. Right. I mean, because these aren't you know, going through an editorial process. They're blogs. They're blog posts, basically. Right. Right. Yeah, and they're yeah. and they're published kind of of the moment. And so every night she's staying up late pumping these things out and then immediately putting them online, you know, all warts and all. Sometimes there are uh, even gram- yeah, 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 grammatical mistakes. And that's another thing that the detractors come at her for, because sometimes there are just mistakes. Uh, there was one case where she claimed that a nurse had passed away when, in fact, she hadn't. She was still in the ICU at the hospital um, because she's getting this information. You know, it's a fluid uh, process where this information's coming in. Um, she's pushing these things out immediately. But then when she makes mistakes, she's very forthright. And then a day or two later, she'll say, apologies to my readers. Two days ago, I posted X, Y, and Z. I now realize that's not correct. My apologies to the families. I didn't mean to offend anyone. And when she mm-hmm. makes mistakes, she corrects them. And so she's very transparent. Um, however, that is still something that the detractors come at her for. This, yeah, uh, naturally. Yeah. So the detractors actually don't just come at her from the political left in China. They also come at her from the political right. I mean, Jeremy and I, uh, we brought up Fang Fang's Wuhan Diary when we interviewed Ji Xiaowei, who is a, a film critic, um, a woman you know, actually, right? She's uh, Yes, a colleague in the field. I know her well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Uh, she wrote this really moving piece in the New York Review of Books a couple of months ago. So I reached out and and, and got, got her on the show. It was a terrific conversation. Uh, we mentioned, though, how some of the criticisms of the diary uh, were that it didn't hit hard enough, that there was this worry. Um, there was one professor, a friend of ours in particular, who wrote to Jeremy and, and, and to me, uh, just saying that people, she, he was afraid that people would think that this was the new Gulag Archipelago, that she was a new, you know, Solzhenitsyn, when in fact it was actually pretty tepid stuff, that the criticisms weren't that strenuous. Um, you've pointed out that there's actually quite a bit of, you know, cheerleading in the book too. Maybe you can talk about that and, and what you think of this critique from the, the, the dissident side, from the Fan Gong side. Well, I'll start by saying that in no way do I consider Fang Fang a dissident on any level? She is someone just trying to speak the truth and trying to recount what she's seeing, what she's hearing, what she's experiencing, what she's feeling. Um, there's a lot of just emotional response to how she's navigating the whole, the outbreak, the quarantine, her fears about her family, fears about her daughter, what people around her are going through. Um, and so I don't think that... When you when you read it, you're going to get both sides. And and when the government does things right, she gives them credit, full credit. And when they screw things up, she calls them out on it. And so, I, I don't think whether you're a rightist or a leftist looking to use this book as a tool or looking for some ideological evidence in this book, you're probably will be disappointed because she's not a dissident, nor is she a pro CCPer. She's just somebody trying to trying to kind of call it as it is. I mean, in some ways, I look at this book as a love letter to Wuhan. It's, you can hmm. just, pouring out of this book is her passion, her empathy, her, the way she's trying to just do something good for the people around her, for her citizens, fellow citizens, for her friends, for her neighbors. This is the, the city where she's lived in, you know, her entire life. And, so, and I think that that really comes through. I see it more as a love letter to this city than anything else, but it does have 
really biting criticisms of how local officials mishandled various aspects of the outbreak early on. And it also has all kinds of accolades for the government when they did things right. I mean, yeah. Hey, maybe you could give us an idea of of what it really sounds like. I mean, could you read a couple of selections for us? Give us, you know, a sense of the the flavor of the book and of of her prose. Sure. What I'm going to do is pick two passages, one from early on in the diary when the outbreak was Mm-hmm. Just kind of amping up. This is around February, an entry from February 2nd. And then I'll read a second one from much later, and you're going to feel a very different tone. And what these passages also do is show you how much the diary transformed over the course of it being written. Because early on, when everything is fluid, there's a lot of unknowns, there's a lot of questions. More of the diary is devoted to the actual disease and what's happening. Once the outbreak is more under control, and the attacks against Fang Fang start really amping up. I would say the whole last third of the book, one theme that really starts coming up is her engagement with calling officials to task, asking them to take responsibility for whatever missteps that or things that they mishandled early on. But also then you have the detractors attacking her. And there's a huge portion of the diary which deals with her response to all of the online attacks. And so it goes from being a kind of chronicle of the outbreak to something that is really almost a an incredible ethnographic study of internet culture and web culture <laughs> in China. And so there is this transition that you see taking place. Wow. All right, let's hear. Okay, February 2nd, 2020. A speck of dust falling from an entire era may not seem like much, but when it falls on your head, it's like a mountain crashing down on you. It's day nine of the Lunar New Year. How many days has it been since we have been hanging on? I'm not in the mood to even count. Someone wanted to come up with some question and asked if you can identify what day it is without even looking at your cell phone, and you have to respond immediately without thinking about it. Wow, that's a mind zinger right there. How can anyone be expected to remember what day of the week it is? The fact that I know it's day nine of the Lunar New Year is already something of a miracle. The weather is starting to turn a bit gloomy. It even rained this afternoon. Those patients running around town to different hospitals trying to get treatment are going to be in even more desperate straits. When you go outside and take a look around Wuhan, everything seems to be orderly and normal, just like always except for the fact that there are hardly any people outside and all the lights and all the buildings are turned on. Most people don't seem to be lacking food or supplies. So long as nobody is sick in your family, things are fairly stable. The city isn't the purgatory that a lot of people seem to be imagining it to be. It is instead a rather quiet and beautiful, almost majestic city. But all that that changes the second someone in your family falls ill. Immediately, everything is thrown into chaos. It is, after all, an infectious disease, but hospital resources are limited. Everyone knows that even when a doctor's family members get sick, they usually don't get admitted to the hospital unless it's a particularly serious case. These past few days, we were all in what the specialists predicted to be the period of viral outbreak. I expect I will be seeing or hearing even more grim news in the days to come. This video I found online was so difficult to watch today, it had a series of clips of a daughter trailing behind her mother's funeral car, screaming through her tears. Her mommy was gone, 
and now her remains were being driven away. The daughter will never be able to give her mother a proper burial. She probably won't even know what they did with her mother's ashes. In Chinese culture, the rites of death are so central to who we are, perhaps even more important than how we live, which makes this all the more heartbreaking for a daughter to face. But there's nothing we can do. Actually, there's nothing anyone can do. Our only choice is to grin and bear it. Even though it is getting to the point that most of the patients can't bear it anymore, nor can their families. But if you don't bear it, what else is there we can do? I once wrote something somewhere that a speck of dust falling from an entire era may not seem like much, but when it falls on your head, it's like a mountain crashing down on you. The first time I wrote those words, I don't think I fully grasped the depth of what it represented, but now those words are etched in my heart. Earlier in the afternoon, I was in touch with a young reporter. He told me he felt utterly helpless. He felt like all anyone was paying attention to were the numbers, how many were infected, how many were dead, but what about what was behind those numbers? It is really a shame what these young people have to go through. They are just starting out in life, and now they have to face the cruel reality of what it means to struggle and face death, not to mention all those restrictions that have been placed upon them. I too feel helpless. But then again, when I think about it from another angle, besides standing up and putting on a brave face, what else can we do? We're not trained to help the sick. All we can do is face what lies before us and shoulder what is coming. And when we have the wherewithal to help others, we help them shoulder it too. But no matter what, I need to bear another week. That's great. Thank you. And then the second is, you say, from much later in the in the outbreak. Yes, this is a passage from March 7th. and Oh, my birthday. A happy birthday. <laughs> uh, and this was when the outbreak started to really... The government started to really get a hold on the outbreak and things. the numbers were way down, people were feeling a lot better, and the local government called on the people to express their gratitude to the government for how well they had handled things. Yeah. And so this is Feng Feng's response to the government's call to express gratitude. Today, the word appearing most frequently online... On, excuse me, let me, let me retake that. Mm-hmm. Today, the word appearing most frequently in online chat groups is gratitude. The political leaders here in Wuhan have requested that the citizens provide a public expression of gratitude toward the Chinese Communist Party and the nation. Their thought process is really strange. The government is the people's government. It exists to serve the people. Government employees are servants of the people, not the other way around. These government leaders spend all their time studying political doctrines, How could they end up getting this so backward? Professor Feng Tianyu from Wuhan University said, As for this question of gratitude, let's not mix up the relationship between the people and those who hold power. If you're going to take those in power as gracious benefactors who require that the people get on their knees and thank them for their benevolence, I think you'd better go back and listen to what Marx said during a speech in 1875. Marx despised Ferdinand LaSalle's notion of state supremacy and argued that the state has need, on the contrary, of a very stern education by the people. I'm sure that all the political leaders in Hubei and Wuhan very much respect the views of Professor Feng. If this current group of new leaders are educated, I wonder if they will really hear what Professor Feng is trying to say. That's right. The outbreak is now basically under control, and we should indeed express our gratitude for that but it should be the government standing up to express their gratitude, 
the government should start off by expressing their gratitude to the families of those thousands of victims. Their loved ones were wrongful victims of a terrible scourge. They weren't even able to say goodbye to their family members or have a proper funeral. All they could do was keep the pain inside and bottle everything up, and meanwhile, virtually no one uttered a word of complaint. The government should express their gratitude to the more than 5,000 people still lying in hospital beds as they struggle for their lives against the god of death. It is their stubborn will to live that has showed the number of, slowed the number of deaths down. The government should express their gratitude to all the healthcare professionals and 40,000 angels in white who came to Wuhan from all around China to save people's lives. They worked in the face of great peril, pulling people from the grip of death one soul at a time. The government should express their gratitude toward all those workers and laborers who hustled all over the city during the course of this outbreak. They are the ones who kept this city functioning amid the crisis. And the government should save their biggest thanks for the 9 million residents of Wuhan who locked themselves in their homes, even though it meant facing all kinds of difficulties. Without their cooperation, this virus would have never been able to be brought under control. No compliments or beautiful words would be considered excessive in describing the contributions all of these people made. My dear government, please suck in your pride and humbly extend your gratitude to your masters, the millions of citizens of Wuhan. Next, the government should make haste and beg for the people's forgiveness. This is a time for reflection and assuming responsibility. A rational government with a conscience that listens to the needs of its people and understands how to console them should, at this very moment, quickly establish an investigative team to piece together the full details surrounding the outbreak. Who was responsible for delaying the response? Who decided to withhold information about the outbreak from the pure public? Who were the leaders that, in order to save face, decided to twist the truth when reporting to their superiors and hide the truth from the public? Who was it who put political correctness above the lives of our people? How many people contributed to this disaster? Whoever had a hand in this should take responsibility. The people need someone to assume accountability. At the same time, the government should urge officials from various departments whose actions misguided the public, leading to massive numbers of deaths, to resign. Individuals to be investigated should include high-level government administrators, top officials from the Ministry of Propaganda, those in the media who help cover things up, and top officials from the Department of Health. If any of them are criminally liable, let the courts decide their punishment. However, based on my observations, most Chinese government officials are lacking when it comes to self-reflection, not to mention those willing to take the blame and resign. In a situation like this, citizens should, at the very least, draft a public call for those officials who took politics as the center of their world while treating people like trash to resign. How can we let these people with blood on their hands continue strutting around in front of the people of Wuhan, gestilating as if they are heroes? Supposing that 10 or 20 officials stand up and resign as a result of this, at least we will know that there are a few officials left who still have a conscience. Tonight, Around dusk, a famous writer sent me a text. He wrote something that I found to be quite profound. Who could ever have imagined that a second catastrophe would befall the Chinese language itself? Gratitude. It's such a beautiful word, but I'm afraid it has been forever sullied. I wonder if moving forward, it will now become a sensitive term that we aren't allowed to use. Wow. That is scathing. I'm curious, Michael, 
in the months since you've been in touch with her fairly regularly as, as, as I know, uh, has she talked about the blame that's been placed on China and on Chinese officialdom, uh, by people in some Western countries and especially the kind of imputation of, of almost intentionality by the Trump administration? Has she talked about that at all? No, she has not mentioned uh, in any of my communications that I've had with her. She never mentions America or the Trump administration. She did write a preface to the book or an introduction at the very end. And in that she did clearly, that's the one time she mentioned America. And in that text, she does talk about the fact that the kind of irony that these politicians on both sides, the U.S. and China particularly, are pointing fingers at each other and playing this blame game, whereas medical workers and medical researchers from China and America are, are really striving to work together to crack the code of this disease, have breakthroughs, and try to really do something positive and constructive. And she does express a preference for the latter approach, that we have a more constructive relationship and we work together to try to battle what she calls our the common enemy of humankind, which is this virus, and feels right. that the politicization that's been happening between the U.S. and China is very much misguided. Has she talked at all about the U.S. handling of the COVID-19 outbreak? And I mean, the fact that there are now uh, about 120,000 deaths as we as we record. She hasn't mentioned too much about it, no. And she sometimes will say she she's, hasn't been as up to date on what's been happening here. Uh, but she definitely expresses her warm wishes of that everyone's okay. And I think she's quite concerned about what's happening globally. Um, but she's also been wrapped up in her own firestorm locally with, you know, the attacks and the political pressure upon her. And so let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the attacks that she's been subjected to. Um, you know, it's, it's been pretty nasty in her case uh, because, well, you know, you've been attacked as well, but there's an ocean separating you and, and most of the trolls. Uh, this is happening directly to her. This is happening in the form of, you know, dads the ball that are being posted in her, her residence compound and, and things like that. You know, she's getting it not just from sort of trolls, but uh, she's she's under a lot of a program from from uh, high profile people. There was this MMA fighter, this real piece of work. Uh, what was the guy's name? Lele. Yeah, uh, the guy who he actually you know, this guy who got his ass beat by uh, Xu Xiaodong. Uh, and he issued sort of a fatwa against her even. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about what she's gone through, and then we'll we'll switch over to talk about what you've been experiencing? Yeah, the kind of attacks that Fang Fang has received, it's in our contemporary era, it's really unprecedented. I mean, you hear about trolls attacking intellectuals or people online in China. Um, I mean, that's that's been going on for years, but the volume, the the frequency, the the level of attacks is really something that I've never I've never seen. I mean, these attacks have been persistently continued against her for at least four months now, maybe a bit longer, maybe five months. And we're talking about it's a multifaceted attack. And so on the one hand, you've got this just the vulgar trolls who are sending in some cases, death threats, mostly it's curses, it's insults, it's sometimes sexualized, uh, sometimes uh, 
It's just trash talk, but just an incredible volume of thousands upon thousands of messages on a daily basis posted to Fang Fang, mostly on Weibo, but on her message boards, um, just very uh, horrific attacks. And then coupled with that, there's a disinformation campaign. And so you have official looking articles that are posted on various websites, also on various social media platforms in China, which try to discredit various aspects of Fang Fang's diary. Of the, uh, Some of them go into her personal information, but you have this disinformation campaign. Let's be clear here. What is her alleged crime? What, what is it that she's supposedly done that has these people so angry? At this point, you could probably ask, what hasn't she done in their eyes? Because there's almost nothing that she can write which won't be subjected to such a level of scrutiny and dissected in such a radical way that they'll find fault with it somewhere. But uh, some of them are what we talked about earlier, that uh, just a few of the, the frequently cited accusations are that it's all lies, that she's fa- it's fabricated, that somehow the whole diary is fiction. It's not even an actual record of what happened. Um, that's one of the accusations. Uh, but, but it lies in the service of what? I mean, obviously, they think that you know the very fact that she is talking about her, her perception of the failings of Wuhan municipal government, of health administrators, of the national government... That it is is the crime, right? I mean, it's this that whole that 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 aspect of you know don't don't flaunting your dirty laundry in public. That part of it came into play once the book went global, and once there was a, even an announcement that the book would be published in Germany and America and another foreign language edition. That came into play, but they, there there's less of an attack directly on the fact that she's calling for accountability. Uh, instead, it's somewhat deflected and it's and it's basically claiming that she's not patriotic and that she's not being a big enough cheerleader for the CCP and all the positive things they did and there there are actually accusations how come you didn't uh chronicle the building of the temporary hospitals that you know, you remember there was a live stream early on that was showing these incredible hospitals that were built just within the matter of days like in a week these state of the art facilities were being put up and and there were, there were accusations. How come you're not uh, acclaiming the government for what they're doing? And, her, and she actually responds to that in the diary because these attacks were happening right. as she was writing. Yeah. And she says, there are plenty of cheerleaders in China. If you want to learn about that, go to CCTV, you know, go to the Xinhua news agency and all over you're getting that, you know, cheerleading and this phrasing of the government for what they're doing. And and she said, I don't, they don't need another voice. Uh, if you want that you can find it there, but this is a personal record. This is a diary. This is my journal. This is what I'm feeling, my response to what's happening. But the detractors still feel that she is somehow not uh, patriotic enough, and she wasn't, you know, that that's another accusation. But the big one came when the book was announced to be published internationally. Then the real... Uh, Everything changed, and and actually, a lot of the supporters who had been in her corner for so long, you really sensed the tone was starting to shift, and there was a sense that she could write this diary within China to be consumed by Chinese readers. But once those criticisms went global, it was put in a different context, and the the real threat that kept coming out in these accusations was that she was somehow 
intentionally trying to weaponize her book and give this weapon to the United States in particular as a tool to harm China. Um, well, Michael, that was, you're not exactly yeah. a China basher, but surely there is something frustrating to know that you yourself or, or Fang Fang are being used instrumentally by, you know, by the people who are China bashers. I mean, that's got to kind of suck, right? You're, you're caught between these nationalist trolls on the one hand and by people who are going to cherry pick for the you know the most scathingly critical stuff and use it as aha i see it's true what we've been saying it is china's fault well well the irony here is that the say the u.s based china bashers haven't really picked up on this book they haven't tried to weaponize it or at least not to my knowledge uh it's only within china that the ultra leftists keep claiming that that's what the intention of this book is. Mm. And of course, it was never the intention, not of me, not of Fang Fang, not of the publisher. Uh, as I mentioned, when I first started translating this, I'd only read a few thousand words. I didn't even see much of this critical side of it. It was, uh, and it actually got much more critical as the novel, as the diary was being written. But that. That narrative really only exists in the Chinese cyber universe, that somehow this is a weapon to hurt China. It's only, and in fact, uh, the way in which this works, it's so strange that even some of these Chinese trolls come to Amazon in the US and write one-star reviews of the book, <laughs> and then they back-translate them into Chinese and post them on Weibo as evidence of how American readers are also looking at this book as fiction and lies and, and pointing their finger and saying, see, not even the American readers are buying this, this crap. And so, um, but the, the core of your question, it's incredibly frustrating and sad and heartbreaking to see a book that, like I said, is really an incredible testament to this moment that's so important in human history, right? The the beginnings of the spread of this disease, which has now brought the whole world to its knees. And this is a document where if you don't know much about what happened during the early days in Wuhan, you can come to this book and day by day really see the evolution of how people responded, how their views on the disease shifted and changed, how people reacted. Um, and it's just a fascinating look into that. And yet it's somehow been twisted and politicized and and if you just read the articles and the noise surrounding the book, you'll think you're reading about a completely different book because when you read the actual diary, you're going to find something very, very different. Oh, yeah. Not surprised. Michael, like I said, you've been in touch with her in, in time since, since this whole nightmare started. How is Fang Fang holding up? How is she doing personally? You know, mostly we exchange texts and it's hard to really gauge, you know, through texts how, how someone is weathering the storm. But I will say that she's been incredibly brave. And through this process, she's really emerged. She was always a writer that I admired, but she's almost become a kind of personal hero of mine throughout this process. Yeah, because, I, um, I mean, I got a small, small taste of what these attacks feel like, um, but it's probably 5% of what she faces on a daily basis. And it's been protracted. And so for months on end now, every day, thousands of terrible, terrible messages. And like you said, big character posters posted outside her residence, uh, famous, like you said, MMA, MMA fighters in these very surreal moments calling for her to be tracked down and beaten or killed. Um, and not to mention the other kind of pressures that she's facing. 
I really can't wrap my head around what she must be going through and and how most people I know, whether they be in China or even here in America, if you were subjected to that kind of attack and pressure, I think most people would just buckle under and give in. And she's been so brave and just uh, looking all of this in its eye and fighting back. And when she gives interviews, she will she speaks right to right directly to these detractors and these attackers and will speak truth to power and try to really make sure that the truth isn't buried. And I just have so much uh, respect for her. And I, I think it's really an incredible, I, 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 like I said, I would have buckled a long time ago if I was Fang Fang and in China and facing what she's been facing. Well, I don't even know I'd hold up as well as you have with your, I mean, you've, it's not like you've gone through nothing either. I mean, I've never received death threats. This is, that's just absolutely terrible. But uh, yes, she seems just unbelievably brave. And uh, I wish her the best and, and you as well. Uh, Michael, man, th- thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, the book, once again, is Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantine City. Michael Berry is the translator of it. Uh, Michael, before I let you go, uh, let's do recommendations. Before that, I want to tell cynical listeners what they can do to help us out. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today's SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca Network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions, but we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com and help us out. Thank you so much. Yeah, so once again, that's podcast.subchina.com. I want to apologize. I know a lot of you who wanted to donate uh, were frustrated in that effort because uh, we had just gone through a major site renovation. I hope you've had a chance to check out the new website. Uh, The design, I think, is terrific. But uh, one of the casualties of it was this donation page that I had been um, pimping. Uh, now we're back up and running. Donations are working, so please help us out. Thanks, everyone. So, Michael, what do you have for us? Besides, of course, that that lovely 
uh, bass that you just picked up that that lovely custom bass, uh, which I'm not going to ask you to talk about. But uh, do make sure to give us at least a couple of musical recommendations. Yeah, well, I should, I should probably preface this by saying to the listeners that the reason Kaiser and I can talk about this is he's one of the few people in my social universe where my very different worlds of music and China kind of come together. <laughs> and so we can actually talk about both sides of this. But as you know, I've been, uh, I started studying bass when I was probably 13 years old or something. And it's been a kind of an alter- alternate universe aside from my China studies stuff. Why don't I suggest there's a new CD called Free Spirit by a trio of India-based musicians, including Mohini, Mohini Day, who's his bass guitar virtuoso. And she's really young, right? I mean, she's like this teenage woman. I think she's in her 20s now, okay. but, okay. but, when she uh, hit the but she's, her father was a bass player, and I think she took lessons from a very young age. And she's what's interesting is she combines both jazz and rock and fusion with traditional Indian music in terms of the rhythms, the scales, and it creates a really innovative, well, fusion for no better word. And so I would recommend you check out her a collaborative effort called Free Spirit. Yeah, I, I heard one track off of that called Dream 106. Uh, it's just fantastic stuff. Is that on that album, Dream 106? Yes, that's on the album. And so you can see it on YouTube or... Uh, or, or- if, if you guys are fans of, of Steve Morris or the Dregs, if you're fans of, um, you know, melodic kind of guitar-driven stuff, um, if you're into... Um, some of the eight string gent stuff. I think you're going to just dig this. I mean, it's crazy good musicianship and it's really listenable. Yeah. It's a fantastic recommendation. Um, my recommendation is just for a very funny TV show. I think there's two seasons of it out. It was originally based on a movie um, called what we do in the shadows. And that's the name of the, the TV show as well. It's a mockumentary show, you know, along the lines of spinal tap or the office. Um, and it follows the lives of a group of vampires who live together in a house on Staten Island. And they've got this sort of uh, Dilbert-looking American accountant-type guy who lives with them as well, who is an energy vampire, which is very, very funny. He he drains people by boring the shit. Uh, anyway, the, the, the actual uh, protagonist is the long-suffering human familiar to one of the vampires. His name is Guillermo, and he's this earnest and super likable Mexican-American guy. Uh, but it's it's just, I have to say, the series is better than the movie, and especially the second season. It's just gold. It's just really gold. So definitely check it out during quarantine. I think everyone needs stuff to, to watch. It's on FX. Anyway, Michael, thank you once again, man. That's uh, a lot of fun. And stay safe in in both senses of the word. I mean, you know, stay safe lest the trolls cross the Pacific and stay safe against the the disease. Thank you. You stay healthy too, Kaiser. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, indeed. Thanks a lot. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our expanding network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.